The Apostle uh, Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, te- uh, from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have uh, remembered what the Lord has done for us um, this morning, and we have sung about that. Let me just proclaim it one more time. Uh, The good news uh, of the Bible, of Christianity, is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And as we anticipate uh, uh, celebrating Christ's death and His resurrection in a couple of weeks, uh, we celebrate it every day uh, because that is our living hope. Uh, The Bible teaches very clearly that we are born in this world with sin. We're born sinners. Uh, We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. And um, that sin separates us from God. Uh, God is a holy God and righteous God. He cannot let sin in His presence. And so that's a very hopeless situation. Uh, But again, God loved us so much, He sent His Son. And Jesus, when He died on that cross, was taking our sin upon Himself. And He lovingly placed that sin, our sin, the sin of the world, on Himself. And God the Father judged His Son instead of judging us. And um, in that death of Jesus, he was paying the penalty as our substitute for our sin. Now, he would have stayed dead in the tomb if one of your sins had not been paid for. But three days later, he rose again because all of our sins, even the ones we're going to commit 10 years from now, all of our sins have been paid for perfectly, completely, and finally. And when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished you can go to heaven on that. It is finished. And that means that if you're here today and you still think that maybe by being here or by good works or giving money or uh, obeying the Ten Commandments or something like that will somehow earn favor with God and that that will be the basis upon which He will say, welcome to my heaven. Uh, Well, actually the opposite will happen because anybody who's attempting to get to heaven by their own performance or good works will never get to heaven because there's only one way to get to heaven, and that is putting one's faith in Christ and Christ alone. He did all the work, and He invites us to receive a free gift of eternal life. And that's what we celebrate. That's the foundation for what we believe, what historic Christianity is all about. So let me just ask you, have you done that? Uh, Have you transferred your trust off of yourself or all your attempts at good works And if you come today as we've celebrated this Lord's table, to put your faith only in Christ, not faith in Christ plus something else, but faith in Christ alone. He's the only one who offers eternal life, and He offers it freely. You say, how do I do that? Well, you just heard the good news, now you have to believe it, because it's by faith and faith alone. I'm not going to ask you to get up and walk an aisle, say a prayer, get baptized, I'm inviting you to believe this good news message. 
Again, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. As you're sitting there right now, do you believe it? And in the moment of faith, the Bible says your sins are forgiven and you're born again to a living hope. Man, that's good enough. I feel like I could quit now. I mean, that's what it's all about. However, I have worked hard this week on a difficult passage, and you will sit there and listen. You know, there's a principle, a universal principle that we all uh, experience and live by every day, the principle of cause and effect. If I eat too many calories, I will take another notch in my belt. That's a cause and effect. If I go too fast through a speed trap, I'll get ticketed. It's a cause and effect. If you make free throws in the final less than a second in a game, you will go to a national championship game for you basketball cavaliers. Cause and effect. Now, similar to that is a principle called choices and consequences. Very similar. You make a choice, there's a consequence that goes with that. It's a package deal. If I want to make, if I want to make this choice, if I want to do this action, then this consequence goes with it. I, I don't have the luxury to choose both. Like, I want to do these things, but I want these consequences. No, if I want these consequences, it's going to limit what choices I make because they're a package deal. But if I do these choices, make this choice, do this action, then these consequences will go with it. It's a package deal. Now, in our passage today in Isaiah, he uses this law of cause and effect, of choice and consequence, to communicate some very important truths about, about worship, about worshiping God authentically, about living authentic lives before a holy God. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And hopefully after almost over a year now, when I say that, your Bible's just kind of naturally open to the book of Isaiah. And we're in Isaiah chapter 58. And it begins with verse 1 with uh, a cry aloud, a shout out loud, cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sin. Declare louder. Literally, it's cry from the throat, deep within your throat. This is a deep, loud shout. Declare the sin of my people. God has something very important to tell his people about their sinful ways. Now, if you were here last week with us in chapters 56 and 57, we saw what some of those sins look like from chapter 56 and 57. They were involved in false worship, uh, pagan worship, lewd, sinful, um, perverted worship that involved temple prostitutes and, and actually even sacrificing their children. And he... Uh, in chapters 56 and 57, calls them out about this. What is it now in chapter 58 that he's calling them out against? Well, look at verse 2. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways, 
as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Oh, no, wait a minute. That sounds pretty good to me. They seek me day by day, delight to know my ways. A nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions and they delight in the nearness of God. That's piety. That's worship. That's religion at its finest. What in the world does God have a problem with that about? I like how the NIV translates it. I'm just read from the New American Standard Version. The NIV says this, for day after day they seek me out and they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its gods. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near them. Now what we'll find out is, oh, there was a certain segment of the Jewish people who seemed to be doing everything right in terms of outward religiosity. But in reality, it was inauthentic worship. How do we know? Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? They're saying, hey, we, we've done all this stuff. I mean, we're very religious. We're going through all the right motions. But hello, God, where are you? It doesn't seem like anything's getting through there. And God responds, behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and then drive hard all your workers Verse 4, behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. God is saying, here's why I'm not responding to you. Here's why I'm silently, silently rebuking you. Your pious rituals are merely undertaken to manipulate me. I know your heart, he says. I know your attitudes. He exposes them. You're, you're doing it for your own desire, for your own pleasure. You're coming to the temple. You're doing your, your uh, outward religious activities. And meanwhile, back at the factory, back on the farm, your workers are being oppressed. God says, I, I see that. The true heart attitude exposed there in verse 4. You fast for contention and strife. You strike with a wicked fist. The NIV says your fasting ends in quarreling, in strife. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high, says God. And the point being, outward religiosity was not impressing God. And he was looking right through it right through it. They were hypocrites, trying to earn God's favor by this outward display of, 
of religion and yet harming relationships, harming their workers, oppressing others. They wanted God to take care of them even though they weren't taking care of others. And so in verse 5, he said, It is a fast like this which I choose. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it, is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out a sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Is that what it's all about? God is saying, is, is that what you really think I want? The, the contrite look, the outward humble attitude where you bow before, you, you, you're, you're there in sackcloth and ashes. You think that's what I really want? Will you call this a fast? Last part of verse 5. As an acceptable day of the Lord. Is this really an acceptable day? Is this really worship? External rituals, he says, without a change of attitude, without the proper heart condition, does not a fast make. It's similar to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, O Lord, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 15, they um, express their worship with their lips, but your heart is far from me. Heartless worship brings nothing but a silent rebuke from God. And so starting in verse 6, he says, now let me tell you what real worship looks like. Verse 6 says, is this not the fast which I choose? And then he gives this whole list of things to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover, cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Now, in these verses, 6 through 14, the rest of the chapter, there's this series of, of three um, cause and effect relationships that are mentioned. Three if this, then this statements. Cause and effect. The choices I want to see, says God, that will bring about the consequences that you really want. And that first cause and effect there that we just read Notice that the emphasis is on relationships, how people treat other people. This is my chosen fast. Loosen the bonds of wickedness. Undo the bands of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh that might imply taking care of your own family? If they wanted to deprive themselves of anything as an outward religious act, if you want to deprive yourself of anything, well, deprive yourself and then give it to the poor. 
take care of the homeless, break the bands of, of oppression and slavery, help people. That's what God is saying. That's my chosen fast. Feed the hungry, house the homeless, clothe the naked. Don't hide from the real needs of people. And he says in verse 8, then, see that cause and effect? If you do that, then, verse 8, your light will break out like dawn and your recovery will be speedily spring forth and your righteousness will be before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then, verse 9, you will call and the Lord will answer you. And he will cry and he will say, here I am. If you make these choices, then these consequences will take place. You'll get to hear me say, here I am. I've got you covered. I'll hear your prayers. The second set of cause and effect starts in the middle part of verse 9. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then, see the cause and effect, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and, and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose, whose waters do not fail. Those from among uh, you will rebuild ancient ruins and you will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. And again, if his audience is these exiles in Babylon, the Jewish exiles, he's saying, look, if you participate in authentic, real worship, true religion, you'll get to rebuild uh, the, the ruined city of Jerusalem. You'll get to find yourself back as the repairs of the walls. If, if, if you guard against defamation and mockery and scorn, verse 10, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you fight oppression of all sorts, again, all relational things, how we treat others, then, then I will bless you. There's one more cause and effect listed. Look at verse 13. If, because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, speaking your own word, then, verse 14, you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. If this, then that. If your heart is towards others and you're not conducting your religious activities for your own pleasure 
to accomplish your own points and desires and accomplish what you want. If you're doing authentic worship, not to manipulate me, says God, but to really delight in me and to honor me by how you treat others, then blessings will flow both now and in eternity. Victory and peace and power and glory. And the certainty of all this, he wraps up with that last phrase which says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. And it's interesting, Isaiah 58 begins with God speaking, the shout of rebuke. It ends with God speaking a promise of blessing. Now, the relevancy of this chapter, we've walked through it pretty quickly, but I think it's pretty obvious. Um, pretty obvious of how we can apply this. It might be a bit dis- disturbing, as we'll see in a moment, but I think it's pretty obvious. God cares that we engage Him in authentic worship, true, unhypocritical, authentic worship. And it's measured, listen, it's measured by how we treat others. How we treat others, says God, is a reflection of how we view Him. He cares about the internal realities. God is never impressed with external forms. Man looks at the outward appearance. God always looks at the heart, that x-ray vision that goes right deep into the heart motives. We can never pull the wool over God's eyes. Oh, we can pull the wool over each other's eyes. You folks don't have a clue how I treated my wife this week or how I treated God. I don't look so bad, though, up here, do I? And I might sound all right, (laughs) but you don't know the heart, but God does. We can never pull the wool over God's eyes when it comes to worship because God knows us so well. Now, there's one thing to understand about this passage, and I think it's very important. This is a passage that's directed to, as it says in verse 1, to my people. Declare to my people. God was concerned about His people treating His people rightly. It's in the context of the community of of the Selvashay, the believers, the community of of the people of God. This is a passage in Isaiah 50. He's not saying, hey, you guys aren't treating the Amorites very well, or the Hittites very well, or the Assyrians very well. No, no. That's another message, by the way, how God's people should treat those who are not God's people in the world. But this is a passage focused on how God's people are to treat God's people, each other. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Let us do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. Especially the household of faith. And so let me share with you, by way of application, uh, three New Testament passages, and there's many more, but three that speak to this, and I'll spend most time on the first one. So here's the first one. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 
We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Four things I want to mention about this passage. First of all, the obligation of love. We know love by this, he says in verse 16, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought, and it's written in, in a way, it's a form written that expresses moral obligation. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Since we are the recipients of his love, John is saying, there is, this is not a, a nice suggestion, this is a royal command. We must lay down our lives for one another, the obligation of love. Second of all, he speaks of the awareness of love. Whoever has the world's goods and sees, beholds his brother in need. If we are going to fulfill Christ's command in this passage, it, it means we have to open our eyes and see. We have to have our radar up detecting needs around us. We have to see if you have the world's goods and you behold, you see someone in need. If we're not finding opportunities to love sacrificially like Christ has loved us, we must not have our eyes open. Have you, do you know anybody recently who's lost a job? Know anybody who's got some mounting medical expenses? Radar up. Seeing, beholding, look around. What do you see? What needs might someone have? Are we watching? Now, caution, obviously. Some needs are the making of our own sinful choices, bad decisions, personal sin. That's not what he's addressing here. Again, that's, I can only teach so much in a 35-minute message, so you have to use your own common sense on some of this. <laughs> but there are legitimate needs within the body of Christ. Do we see it? We have a wonderful benevolence ministry here at Fellowship. First Sunday of every month, we collect an offering. Information's in there. We have a benevolence distribution, and as needs come up and you hear of needs, maybe within the body, you can direct people to the benevolence fund. And it's a, it's a very worthy and worthwhile ministry that we do here. Thousands of dollars each year are distributed. But, but it does kind of take away the personal connection. Let the deacons handle it. Um. I think what John is saying here is if you see, what might you do? Is there anyone God is directing you personally to assist? It's developing a lifestyle of caring. It's, it might be as simple as creating something in your monthly budget that you just set aside, and as God directs you to meet needs, you deal with it. And if 
according to Isaiah 58, if you are engaged in that kind of activity of seeing needs and meeting the needs, Isaiah 58 is saying, watch out. God will bless the socks off you. Let me read again from Isaiah 58, verse 10. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, your gloom will become like midday. God is going to bless you internally, joyfully, emotionally. The Lord will continually guide you. He'll satisfy your desire in scorched places, give strength to your bones, and you'll be like like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. God will bless you. He will encourage your heart. In spite of your circumstances of life, He will honor you with the desire of Himself. Thirdly, this passage speaks of the emotions of love. The emotions of love. Again, verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and then it says, and closes his heart against him. The NIV says, has no pity on him. And so John is talking about real, visceral, emotional uh, responses. In fact, the, the old King James Version, the, the word here has the idea of the, 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 the center of your gut, the, the word compassion or closing your heart, the pity. It's a, the, the King James puts it this way, and he shutteth up his bowels of compassion. That is deep down in your gut. You see something, a need, and it, it moves you. It impacts you. Something painfully happens. And John is saying, if a person closes his heart, once you see this, you've basically shut the door on your, your own emotions. You're denying your own emotional state. You've pulled the door shut. And it would be an act of the will to do that. You see it, and you say no to the emotional response to it. You've put a barrier between your emotions and what you're seeing. And John is saying such a person is not characterized by abiding, it says, in his love. How does the love of God abide in him. The emotions of love. The fourth thing, the practicality of love. Again, verse 17, whoever has the world's goods. We're just getting just right down practical. Whoever has the world's goods, the material things, the sacrifice of love is issued out in practical, material ways. The test of one's sacrificial love is most realistically displayed in the physical blessings to others. And John says in verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but put some shoe leather to it, in deed and in truth. Here's a second passage. Second passage, James 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. And he lists three things about what real, authentic worship is. Real, authentic worship, he says, is bridling the tongue, is watching what we say. 
That's pure and undefiled religion. Guarding what we say towards one another. He said, second of all, it's demonstrable love, love in action. If you see some needs, this is pure and undefiled religion. Taking care of widows and orphans in distress. In the Bible culture, there was no uh, group more helpless than widows and orphans in that culture. They were on the lowest end of the, of the, of the pole. They were absolutely destitute apart from the love displayed by the body of Christ. An unknown author penned these words, which are a bit haunting. I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept out quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked, and your mind debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seemed so holy and so close to God, but I'm still very hungry, I'm still very lonely, I'm still very cold. You know, the bottom line, it's not very appealing to help the helpless because you get nothing in return. I mean, you get nothing in return. But what Isaiah was writing, what John is writing, what James is writing, what the Apostle Paul writes in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves, cause and effect, storing up for themselves. You do these, make these choices, you get these consequences, storing up for yourselves, themselves, the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed." pure and undefiled religion, keeping oneself unstained from the world, James says, watching our tongue and taking care of in a very physical way the needs of others. This, he says, is what God takes notice of. The rich are not told to take a, a vow of poverty in that passage. They're told to take a vow of generosity. And that is real, pure religion rich in good works, choices, consequences, cause and effect. And the choices we make on how we treat others will make a, a grand difference in how God treats us, how God blesses us. It'll make a real difference in how we worship. Earlier this week, my wife was, Lisa was afflicted a little bit with this second wave of the flu that we hear about that's upon us. And it'd be really no big deal that she could be in bed and take care of herself and rest for a few days. And, and the, the complication in our home is that she takes care of her 92-year-old mom who lives with us, who has severe dementia. 
And so it adds a whole layer of complexity. When you're sick and weak and can't take care of your 92-year-old mom. Um, praise God. Answered prayer. She strengthened very quickly, and yet it kind of lingered. And, and one of the community groups in our church here, one of the small groups of young couples, uh, heard about this, and wouldn't you know it, knock at the door, and some meals are provided. And that was such a blessing and I'll tell you, folks, there are some people in this congregation this morning, some young couples who are worshiping God in a way that maybe they wouldn't have <laughs> because, you see, they saw a need and they did something about it, and God says, here I am. <laughs> you take care of others, here I am. And showers of blessing come. This happens all the time in this congregation. Over and over and over do we hear these types of stories. To God's glory, this happens. You see, God is not a God who will be manipulated. We don't come on the Lord's day, we don't come and worship to get something from Him. Do you see me here, Lord, all dressed up and nice? Now, I need something from you. <laughs> oh, God graciously gives us bountifully all things to enjoy. His grace is just poured out on undeserving sinners every second of the day. But Isaiah is telling us, you want to know what really moves the heart of God? It's when you take care of one another. That's worship. Curtis and Michelle Thompson are a couple that we support here at Fellowship Bible Church. They work in inner city Chicago. They work in one of the most dangerous places in America. Deep down in the inner city bowels of Chicago. And every day it can be a frightening experience. But they're planning a church. They're ministering in the community so much so that we got a prayer request this week from Michelle. Curtis has been discipling a 16-year-old young man from that community who, because of some circumstances, has had to leave his home, if he even had a home to leave. And so once again, Curtis and Michelle have opened up their home and they've taken in this young man into their home. In addition to a home that's already full of children, and so Michelle wrote this to us this week in a prayer request. Pray for God's provision of food. Folks, this is 21st century America. And her prayer request to Fellowship Bible Church this week was pray that God would give us food. We have a tight budget, and having six boys in our house to feed has been a challenge. Curtis and Michelle Thompson are living examples of Isaiah 58. Seeing a need and sacrificing to meet it. True religion and shoe leather. And I guarantee you God is saying, 
Curtis and Michelle, here I am. Pray I've got you covered. I'm with you. I hear you. No silent rebuke for the Thompsons. By the way, she added this update. Praise update. I wrote this prayer request on Sunday, last Sunday. On Monday morning, a special gift arrived in the mail, which we were able to use for food. God is so good. And folks, there's someone else, whoever it is, who's worshiping God and hearing God say this morning, here I am. Because you saw and you met the need. I said this sermon is the applications are pretty obvious and they're also a bit distressing because you see folks we all leave here in a few moments and walk out that door back to our wealth let's pray and so father you so oftentimes comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And wherever we're at today, I pray, Lord, that we will have heard from you to speak to us. Through the example of our Lord himself, who though being rich became poor, dwelling in the unapproachable glory of heaven and stepping down into the rags, into the muck and the mire, into the pain and the poverty and the sorrow of our sinful world, he wrapped himself up in humanity. And Lord Jesus, you died that we might live. I pray, Father, that you would stir in us whatever it is you want to stir in us and draw us closer to your heart, to the model that you have set, knowing that you have empowered us with your presence to fulfill in us whatever it is you've called us to. May we not forget what pure and undefiled religion is all about. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.